Let us pray. Gracious Father, draw near to us in our various and separated places right now. And enlighten our hearts with that very same spirit that you poured upon your disciples in that first Easter evening. That through them you have spread the message of Jesus throughout this world. And have touched us with that very word and indwelt us with your spirit. So be at work to continually draw us near to you, to change us, to renew us, to make us. To know you and your son more deeply and more thoroughly. All of this we do ask through that very same Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Those dear tokens of his passion, still his dazzling body bears, cause of endless exaltation to his ransomed worshipers. With what rapture, with what rapture, with what rapture, gaze we on those glorious scars. You might recognize that little verse. It's from a Charles Wesley hymn called, Lo, He Comes on Clouds Descending. As with many hymns, especially older hymns like that, they had sometimes 20, 25 verses that the hymnist would write. And in our hymnals, we have four, maybe six verses at a time. So you might not be familiar with that particular particular verse from that hymn. Sometimes it shows up and sometimes it doesn't because our, our um, hymns have options. The people who compiled the hymnals have options to choose from different sets of verses with some of these hymns. And so it's not always there. But I wanted to read that today because even though this hymn is one that's often associated with Advent, the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, and also his first coming. And so we sing it sometimes during that Advent season. Lo, he comes on clouds descending. Because the song itself is, the hymn itself is about Jesus' return. At the end, when all things are made new. When he returns and judges the living and the dead. Our dear Charles Wesley captures something in these words that I thought we could import here today. Those dear tokens of his passion. Still his dazzling body bears. You see, even in his exalted state, even after his ascension into heaven, Jesus bears in his hands, in his side, on his feet, the marks of his crucifixion. He bears the marks of what it took to earn and win salvation for us. You see, those marks come up multiple times in our gospel text as Jesus shows them first to the ten disciples and others who were gathered together on that first Easter evening, and then a week later directly to Thomas himself. Those dear tokens of his passion, still his dazzling body bears, the cause of endless exaltation to his ransomed worshipers. When Jesus returns, he will continue to bear those marks. And those marks will create exaltation in us, his people, because we will finally see with our own eyes that which the disciples have seen. The marks of salvation. The marks of redemption. The marks that renew all of creation. 
There's something to be said about that. That Jesus raised from the dead in a glorious body. A body that has been refilled with life. A new kind of life. A life that is unending. A life that can never be taken from him again. And yet he walks and bears and lives with those marks upon him. In order to show forth what salvation is. To show forth what salvation has cost God himself. For Jesus is God himself in the flesh. That God himself bore those marks. That he bears those marks in his body. It's a beautiful and wonderful, mysterious thing to think about. To consider and to rest in the reality that when Jesus was raised, the marks of his crucifixion were not undone. They were not taken off of him. They were not put away. But they are worn by him to bring joy to us, to show us the battle marks, to show us the battle scars, the war scars that he bears on our behalf because he bore everything else on our behalf. And what do these marks do for the disciples on this first night? These marks bring them from fear to gladness. You see, the disciples, they were hiding in that upper room once more. It was the first day of the week, the evening of that day. They had heard the rumors of Jesus disappearing. His body was not to be found in the tomb. They had heard Mary and the other women speaking of how they had seen him. Mary had spoken directly with him, and she had come and told his disciples that he was about to ascend to the Father, to his Father and their Father, to his God and their God. And Mary had come and told them, but the disciples were still confused. They were still not understanding what the reality of this meant. And here they are in this upper room, locked away for fear of the Jews. They were living in fear because, after all, what had happened? What had happened to them? They had put their trust in Jesus. He had led them for three years. He had taught them. Little by little, they began to believe something of who he was. Even Thomas said just a few chapters ago in the Gospel of John, let us go and die with him. When Jesus said that he was going up to see Mary and Martha and Lazarus after he had died. There was a determination in them then. And yet, in light of his horrifying death, all the air they had was knocked out of them. They were left in fear of the Jews. They were left in fear of their lives. In fear because they all believed that Jesus was the Messiah because of Jesus' teachings, because of his work and his own cryptic words about being the Son of Man. And so here they are, fearful, scared, unsure of what's going on. And then what happens? Behind the locked doors, Jesus shows up and stands among them. And he says, peace be with you. And he shows them his hands and his side, showing them the scars upon him. And what happens to the disciples when they see Jesus, when they see these marks, when they hear his words of peace? They are transformed. They move from fear to joy. They rejoice. They are glad when they see the Lord. And again, Jesus says, peace be with you. And his disciples begin to grasp and understand those battle scars. They get the import of them. 
They understood that the battle had been won. Though he died that heinous death, there was no way that he could be merely resuscitated. This was something new. He didn't merely wake up in the tomb and push the stone away. No, he had truly died. Completely, end of story. There was no left, there was no life left in those bones when he was taken down from the cross, wrapped in his grave clothes and placed in that tomb. He was dead. And now here he is alive. On Easter morning, he is raised to life. And people were confused, but he shows up. He shows up to them and blesses them and shows them his hands and his feet and his side. The disciples were there except for Thomas. And they were all transformed. They were transformed by his appearance in speaking his words of peace. Jesus is Jesus. He has life in himself now. And now as he looks at his disciples and he says, As the Father sent me, even now, even so, I am sending you. He prepares his disciples to send them out. And he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit that they would have the power to forgive sins, the power to retain sins. That they could then go out and truly proclaim who Jesus is to proclaim this gospel message of good news of salvation to all those around them. They need the Holy Spirit to do that, to empower them, to strengthen them, because as mere men, they will become fearful of other men. They will be broken down and torn apart by the crowds outside, and they will flee from them. But with the Holy Spirit filling them, bringing new life into them, bringing the very life of Jesus into them, they will be empowered to do the impossible. They will be empowered to preach forgiveness to the most heinous of sinners, to tell them that in Christ they are forgiven, to look to Him, to look to His cross, to look in hope of the coming day when He will return and they can look upon those very scars themselves and rejoice that the battle was truly won by Christ. But for those who refuse to repent, for those who refuse to believe, they can withhold that forgiveness. They can remind those who refuse to believe in Jesus, who refuse to follow after him and to recognize their own sinfulness, that they do not receive his forgiveness. That though he has died for the sins of the world, that forgiveness is withheld until they recognize that they need it. That they are sinners in and of themselves without Jesus. And then Thomas shows up later after Jesus has left them. And they tell him about him being there. About how they have moved from fear into gladness. That they have even moved from conflict into peace with the Lord. Through his words of peace, through his giving of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus' death and resurrection is one for the forgiveness of the sins of the whole world that they have now been given the Spirit to go out and preach that very forgiveness that as Jesus was sent the Father by the Father, now Jesus sends his disciples to carry out the message of reconciliation. That in themselves they are in conflict with God. They are not at peace with him because of their sinfulness. 
But through Jesus, there is peace. And he gives them that peace. And he gives them his forgiveness of their sins because he has purchased it through the cross. And now they might go out and carry Jesus' peace with them to others. Christ gave them peace that they might carry that very peace to others. And so they move from conflict to peace in just a mere moment. Transformation occurs within them because of seeing who Jesus is, seeing what he has done again. They saw with their eyes. And then they were sent out to tell with their mouths what Jesus had accomplished. And so then Thomas comes and says, I will not believe this unless I see these marks, unless I can place my finger in them and put my hand into his side. I will never believe. Thomas is in the grip of doubt here. And forever more, until eternity, I suppose, we'll always think of him as doubting Thomas. Why he doubts, we don't know. He was so confident in Jesus that he was willing to go and die with him in Bethany when they went to see Mary and Martha. But through the conflicts, through all that has happened over this past week of the Passion, seeing Jesus crucified, seeing him nailed to the cross, seeing the spear shoved into his side, Thomas has lost his gusto, and he goes into hiding somewhere else, away from the disciples that first weekend after, the, after Good Friday, such that he doesn't even get to see Jesus on that first Easter evening. He misses out on that blessing through his doubt. But Jesus, being Jesus, does not leave Thomas in doubt. He does not leave him there. No, he comes to him, and he appears before Thomas and all the other disciples in that room once more while the doors are locked. And he gives his word of peace. Peace be with you. And then he looks directly at Thomas. And he says, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And in that moment, seeing those scars with his own eyes, he confesses with his mouth, the first one, in fact, to confess that Jesus is both Lord and God. He says, my Lord and my God, and he moves from doubt to faith in just a split moment, transformed by a vision of who Jesus is, not just a vision, but by truly and actually seeing Jesus for who he is. All the disciples have moved now from fear into gladness and joy from conflict into peace, and from doubt to faith. The disciples have all been moved by seeing Jesus, seeing the nail marks and the scars that are on him. And so having completed the story, the great apostle John gives us the first conclusion to his book. And he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here is the whole purpose of what John has written, that we might believe, that others who encounter this book might believe. And there's something funny in the Greek there that we translate as believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that it could be flipped around to say that you may believe that the Christ is Jesus, the Son of God. 
It means the same thing, but it adds a little bit of a difference to it. That the whole point of this book is to say that the Messiah is Jesus, and Jesus is the Messiah. The whole point of this book is to reveal that reality, that the Christ has been revealed, and it is Jesus. The Messiah is Jesus himself. And what do you do when you find out that truth? What do you do when you find out that you can move from fear to gladness? From conflict to peace, from doubt to faith, what do you do with that? And discover that it all turns on who Jesus is. And that this book demonstrates, reveals to us who Jesus is. That he is the Son of God, the true Messiah. And that by believing, by trusting, by acknowledging who he is, you may have life in his name. That is, through his name, through who he is in himself. That is what this book is all about. And that is why we are left today. That we hear about the disciples moving and being transformed in all of these ways by encountering Jesus. They encounter him physically. They got to see him face to face. They could touch his nail scars, his spear wound. And in doing that, they were brought into the full confidence of faith. And they received his spirit when he breathed on them and gave it to them. But we ourselves, how do we encounter Jesus today? We encounter him through the word, through this very book that we have been reading, John knowing that he is inspired and been led by the Holy Spirit to write this book. He knows that if the Spirit has led him to write this book, then that very same Holy Spirit dwells within these words and that those who read these words can encounter Jesus. They can come to know him. They can come to recognize him. They can come to yearn and long for and hope for the seeing of his scars and rejoicing in the salvation more fully. It's like Peter tells us over in his first epistle. That though we do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He's writing to believers who are suffering, who are struggling in conflict. He's encouraging them, telling them that though you haven't seen him, you rejoice because you love him and believe in him. And in that you receive the outcome of your faith, salvation. The purpose of our faith and hope is to find that final redemption in Jesus, to finally see him face to face, to rejoice in what he has accomplished for us. And so that's where I leave you today. Will you move from fear to joy, knowing that Jesus has been raised and bears the marks of salvation upon him? Will you move from conflict to peace, knowing that Jesus has been raised, that he bears the battle wounds, the battle scars of redemption? Will you move from doubt to faith, knowing that Jesus has been raised and bears those marks of salvation, that he bears the bird, that he bears that which has earned us our salvation, continually, forevermore, ascending into heaven in his own body, bearing the scars, the nail wounds for you and me, for the world. So believe, trust, and know that it is the Spirit at work in you. That when you move from these different places, 
from doubt to faith. It's the Spirit moving you. You don't cause yourself. The Spirit acts in you because Jesus has come to you. From conflict to peace as Jesus pours His forgiveness onto you. From fear to joy as the Spirit fills you with that inexpressible joy that fills you up because He dwells with you and brings you the ministry and reconciliation of Jesus into your life. And so look up and see Jesus coming on the clouds. See Him coming, bearing those marks for you. And believe and rejoice that He has borne the sins of the world for you and for me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.